Welcome to Sugarnamic, catering to you a feast of Southeast Asian stories. From the spicy to the sweet, ones that melt and ones that pop. I'm Ruth Ferningroom. And I'm Alexandra Kumala. In this episode, we talk to Yuyu Mintan, a Burmese narrative documentary photographer. Yuyu is the founder of Myanmar Dita and co-founder of Tuma Collective. Yuyu talks to us about education before the Saffron Revolution, Burmaization, censorship, the ethical dilemmas she faced as a documentary photographer, and how the personal is always political. Like other Southeast Asian country, photography is not like a trendy occupation. Uh, trend, uh, nobody um, in my generation think of photography as an occupation. And we also don't have like a photography school or we have like a we have like traditional art school but now photography is listed as art we don't have art museum and we don't have like photo museum or photo gallery in our generation till now we don't have we have very limited sources and so i never think of myself becoming a photographer and i don't have anyone in my relative uh, photographer and i i before becoming a photographer i am i am a teacher i was a teacher's trainer and um, and I think I suddenly become photographer. Uh, I accidentally become a photographer. Um, I was in Hong Kong for my master in 2009. Um, and I was, um, the, the education system in Myanmar is like a very teacher-centered teaching method. And so I'm not very used to with like um, uh, doing a lot of research. And Hong Kong education is so, um, it's, it's, I, I can I can feel the huge gap, and so it's I have to I'm really stressed, and I was one of the late students in the class, and so I hate the classes, and I hate my very small room in Hong Kong, which is like a matchbox to me, and so I usually go out and sit in the park in Hong Kong in 2000 2000 till 2009. I think that I was 29 years old. Until that time, I never sit in a park alone in Myanmar that time. Because sitting in, Myanmar, sitting in the park was like, if a girl sit in a park, people think of me as like um, the park in Myanmar at that time is like a red, red light zone. And so I never had this kind of experience. My area in Hong Kong was uh, very rough because of the renting, the flat is very expensive. And so that area is like uh, near the construction site of the underground train subway station, subway uh, construction of the subway to Hong Kong New at that time. As a Burmese culture, if you smile to your neighbors, um, so I smile to them. And so people think uh, the construction workers, uh, who I think of my neighbors, thought me as a housemate who was looking for sex work as a part-time. So they give me a little piece of paper um, it's kind of like a um, signal for dating, I don't know. <laughs> so to avoid from this kind of uh, situation, I don't know how to handle that. And so I pick up my very small camera, like a point and shoot camera, and I pretend like I'm a tourist. And I start to pretend as a tourist sitting in a park. And uh, I started shooting the street, the street photography. And, and I started to talk and started to tell the stories uh, with the photographs. And, but I don't have language. Uh, I, I don't know how to use my language. And so I started to find the opportunity how to brush up my photography skill in 2000, 2014. Until uh, that, I was just a hob, uh, serious hobbyist. And, and I also was working as a teacher's trainer in 2014. And I um, applied for an international reportage workshop uh, with the uh, Norwegian photography group. and. Uh, Bachala uh, Photography School from Bangladesh. Uh, they do like a touring photography workshop in Myanmar. I sent my portfolio. I didn't expect I will be uh, selected and I was chosen as a participant. And, and I started to work on my uh, real photography workshop since that training. And in, in that training, I was one of the, I'm the only one amateur and other people are just, photojournalists and the student from the Norway or from Bangladesh and so and 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 I was very fascinated to meet with international artists and international art students it's very it's very new to me and also like shooting in the field is also very new to me and and I didn't have the sources I didn't use the fixer so I it's very very challenging that time but 
the time I realized that the more challenges I faced in shooting the story for my assignment, and the, I'm more excited. It's very different from what I used to work in the teaching field. For example, I have like a lot of challenges in, as a teacher, a teacher's trainer, but when I, whenever I had challenges, maybe I will be uh, slowing down my pace or I will be slowing down my energy, but it's different from a different in photography field. And the more I got pressure and the more I got challenges, I'm, the more I'm excited. And so I, later I realized that, oh, this is where I want to be. And then after that workshop, I decided to be a full-time photographer, quit my job, and, <laughs> and become a photographer. And, then <laughs> and so did you spend time in Norway and Bangladesh? No, uh, the workshop is like a touring workshop, and they, did, uh, they chose different, different places, different country every year. So before Myanmar, they chose in Egypt, and, um, and then uh, they did a workshop in Myanmar for their final year student. And so they bring their final year student, and then they also give the opportunity to the, the host country, the student from the photographer from post country. So that year was in Myanmar. So we, I got, I think this is, uh, I got lucky to have uh, that opportunity. Yeah. I'm interested. Uh, when the first time you picked up your old camera, do you think it's uh, it's like an act of self-defense in a way when you're hanging out around yeah. cars? Yeah. It's very, yeah. it's very it's interesting kind of, and very like unique. Like a shield. Like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, uh, photography is is will give you a sort of power. So even as a amateur, even as a hobbyist, if you have photography in you and you can feel some power in your hand, and maybe that's also one of the advantage. But as a photographer, you have to be careful of using that power. You can see the power between the photographer and the collaborator. Other people call subjects. So more and more, I start to shoot and I'm start to feel that power of the photographer maybe we can sometimes we accidentally or unconsciously may misuse it or yeah we need to be careful that's well i have to be remind myself like sometimes yeah it's it's interesting when you say that the camera gives the photographer uh power and i i'm wondering um, these these Westerners who come to Myanmar and carry out their workshops in Myanmar, um, which was one of your first introduction to transitioning from amateur hobbyist photographer to professional photographer, and also um, how you got connected to Sebastian, who knows me, um, was also through another photography workshop where the Western teachers or I guess uh, workshop leaders went to Bali in Indonesia um, to carry out their workshops and had people fly into Bali. Um, and I'm wondering what your, how you as someone who is from Southeast Asia and lives and work in Southeast Asia, how you see that? Uh, honestly speaking, like um, the country like Myanmar, as I told you, we don't have like a photo institution and we don't have like uh, the history of Myanmar, we don't have like uh, much resources. And so in this situation, maybe we somehow rely on the international photography workshops like um, Foundry Photography Workshop and this kind of reportage photography workshop um, because we are kind of like uh, lack of resources that time. Um, but we need to, not just the education site, um, like the festivals, uh, the workshops and the festival curator, most of the, if you see the festival in the region, the festival directors and the curator mostly are the Westerners. So we can see the stories uh, they approve or they show are mostly like um, the stereotypical ways of some, there, there are some curation or there are some uh, teachers who uh, the ex photography experts who know the context and who use the local fixer and local researchers to research about the project. But mostly we, we have been hearing the repeated stories and repeated uh, way of seeing to um, the region. For example, in Myanmar, people, uh, the, uh, the curators, the, um, the, the editor, they wanted to hear the 
story they want to they expected to hear one uh, for example like um, my story with uh, trafficking women from Myanmar to China as bribes and so I started the story in 2015 and I pitched to um, several newspapers at the time they are not interested in <laughs> because the story that is issues. not trending the trafficking yeah at that time and and I was following the trafficking group like a broker so it's I got like a very amazing access so uh, let me do this project but I financially I cannot after finishing five trips but nobody approved me or nobody interested in but interestingly uh, 2019 there was a report of like a trafficking of Myanmar women to China as a bribes in human rights watch uh, report and uh, they start to uh, contact me but that time I don't have like I don't have access with that broker and then group. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So tell me, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah. yeah why, why do you call the, the promised land? That project happened uh, in the eastern part of Myanmar called Shan St- uh, Northern Shan State. The Shan State is the, the, the border region between Myanmar and China. So that region, not just re- that region, we have like a long-lasting civil war that have have happening for decades. So in that area is also a part of like a civil war is happening. So as you can see, civil war is happening, and it's not peaceful. The job opportunity and also development and everything is like very um, damaged, and and also they have like a drag war there. So a lot of people. Um, a lot of people there has like a jobless and they have poverty and so the only way out for them is going and go and walk in China. So there are several people who go and walk in China who got like maybe make fortune but who also uh, lo- lost their life. But we only talk about those who make fortune. So most people in that area is like their dream is going to go and walk in China. And it's like they know they have been hearing like a lot of like a trafficking problem. They have like they have like a lot of stories of people don't coming back. The girls gone appear, disappear and never hear them back. But maybe they chose not to think of that way. And they, they have like other like positive, like happy stories, like uh, some girls married with a Chinese man and made a fortune and supported the family. And so for them, it's like a, it's like a promised land for them. And then I, came to know the community when I was working as a teacher's trainer. One of my participants' fathers is the community leader there. And so uh, that time I was not a photographer. I hear a lot of like uh, stories that oh, their nieces can, didn't come back and they didn't hear back from that, uh, from, her, from their cousin. This kind of stories I hear a couple of times. And so uh, that time, uh, after becoming a photographer, and I wanted to do uh, work on a story on that. but. Because I'm majority Burmese, uh, we have like a, a civil war between ethnic uh, community and military, uh, the Burmese military. And so I have like to work as a Burmese photographer there, I will never get a trust with them. And so I made a photography training with the youth community in the ethnic region and that ethnic leaders. And then one after one year and I got trust and I got the trust of the community leaders and ethnic people and then I got access with the trafficker group so I followed them and I and I met with the group the group start to recruit more people and on that on that night there are like almost like 12 or 15 men and only one girl and she's around 16 and she I can see how her, her nails are like long nails that you can recognize that she never walk a hot walk. But when I asked her, she doesn't speak Chinese and she doesn't, uh, uh, she never have like a walk, walking experience. And she didn't know what she have to walk in China, but she was there because she was to support the family. And that's, that was my first experience with them. And so I, and I, was in dilemma of what should I do because I met with the tra- I was with the trafficker group and I met a little girl who will be probably be trafficked to China illegally and so I was like the other side of me is okay I, I 
why I'm waiting and why should I call the police? But later, like I, I, I even called my mentor at the time and he said, oh, you are a documentary photographer and you gain the trust, you build the trust with the trafficker. And so you are not in the position to tell the stories. You have to be separate yourself like a social workers or documentary photographer. So this is, um, I still remember the first time. And I also, I didn't know what to do. So I asked them like, oh, do you, do you have like, a, can I get your ID card, like ID number? Is something happen? I can do something, uh, just a record. And so they never have an ID, identity card, citizen, citizenship ID card. Also, they are the citizen of Myanmar because that area I told you, like, it's not peaceful, like military is corrupted. Yeah. What's the, what's the opinion of other ethnic groups towards the Burmese? Because the Burmese are like the, the, mo- the, the biggest group, right? But what's like a stereotype um, of the, the, the non-Burmese towards the Burmese? Yeah, there's, uh, there's always a misconception um, as a majority Burmese. We got a lot of like uh, responses from the ethnic community, like you Burmese discriminators. And I didn't realize what did they mean. I didn't realize the discrimination and I didn't realize the Burmanization uh, to that ethnic group that time. So mm. as a, also a majority Burmese, I, um, most of the majority Burmese also didn't take advantage or didn't have any profits, only the military. The military itself is like only Burmese people. And so they have like a ethnic uh, community have the misconception. At that time, when I first heard the response from them, and I was really angry because they couldn't distinguish Burmese and military. But now I, re- I can truly understand what's happening because we also didn't know what's happening to them. We also didn't know they have to flee from their um, uh, houses from being burned, or we didn't know uh, their fear of being raped that time because the censorship and also like some area, the internet connection is uh, really cut down. And so we didn't know what's happening inside there. And so also as a Burmese, majority Burmese, I, I, I couldn't understand what is discrimination and what is happening in their region. And later I, after working with them more year and I started to understand what's happening there and why they think this way and what we thought is also, what majority Burmese thought is also wrong. We, we were angry because we were angry by their response, like for not dis- distinguishing Burmese and military, but we couldn't even um, empathize what happening, what's happening there. We didn't know what's happening to them and their frustration, their struggle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar with uh, what happened in Indonesia because the biggest uh, ethnic group is Javanese and I'm Javanese. I mean, growing up, I don't know why. I don't know that there's such a tension. Like, but after I moved here and then I studied more about my country and then I realized like, yeah, because it's such a, like, a powerful island and they send people out to other islands to work and then the the people on the other islands, they uh, they don't have the chance to have the job because they consider people from the city. And yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, and, and also in Myanmar, um, if you are the majority Burmese and also if your re- uh, religion is Buddhist, uh, if you work in the government, uh, if you're Burmese and uh, Buddhist, you will have opportunities to get promoted and have more chances, not other people. And so even my ethnic friends, they even chose to have a Burmese name for the future, like, uh, because they have like uh, struggles and they have like, they face challenges of being ethnic community from ethnic communities. It's a very sad thing, but we didn't know when we were young, we didn't learn about it because I think we learned the history book that told us like fabricated history of Myanmar. (laughs) I'm actually, can I, can I actually, um, I have a curious question about the, um, the Northern Shun state, because you were talking about, there's a lot of misconception that the majority Burmese have about what's happening in Northern Shun state. Now that you have done a lot of work there and you know the people there, 
do you feel that there is still there's still an overarching narrative that is written by either the military or the government or the you know the majority voice that still writes about northern shin state in a way that continues perpetuating this misconception like if people were not like you and if they didn't go to northern shin state to work will they continue thinking about the about them in that negative way or now the now news have changed and now like everyone is already aware of what's happening there as i told you like uh, we we learn uh, history in a wrong way with the um, the textbook and uh, on our uh, history lessons t- taught us and but now it's like uh, one good thing is like we have like more and more like um, activities like forums and um, like a peace forum something like that and so uh, i think we have more opportunity to learn what is happening uh, but at that time uh, we don't have like a private school we don't have like internet and we don't have like other resources to learn only rely on the government school and so we only rely on the history books uh, which the government um, uh, passed that time um, so it's all about like how Burmese sacrifice for the independence and how Burmese leaders uh, led the country also we were brought up like with that concept like uh, we are the superior and uh, we led the country and we didn't know uh the ethnic community ethnic leaders how they fight for the colonialism we were blinded by the history books and the by our own education still the majority Burmese um they are still blinded by the man- man- manipulated education system or manipulated like society so did did the uh, history textbooks say that the ethnic minority groups did not fight for Burmese independence? What oh, was the say, image? They didn't say, they didn't, uh, there is no ethnic, uh, they didn't say like ethnic community didn't fight for the independence, but mostly only, we only learn about the Burmese hero, Burmese figures. And, and so we have that, um, there are a lot of people who fight for, the independence together with the Burmese leaders, like uh, they are like uh, different ethnic leaders and ethnic community. We were not taught that way. We were manipulated by the Burmese uh, superior and uh, we are the savior or something like that. And so we were grew up with that truth. And till now, some of my educator friends still, I cannot understand the bitterness of the ethnic uh, bitter experience of the ethnic group and the ethnic community how they are bitter about the Burmese majority they cannot understand it because they didn't we we didn't have a chance to know about the real pictures and um, yeah I still couldn't understand the full pictures of the full picture of the Burmanization but more and more like I start to learn and I also uh, trying to work on a project myself on Burmanization, like Burmese supremacy. By doing the project, I think it's also like educating me myself because I I know that my knowledge and my experience with uh, ethnic politics, like the Burmese uh, supremacy, Burmanization, discrimination in the ethnic community is very limited. And so I started to work on that project and maybe in the future I will try to have like a book that other people can also interact. For the Northern Shin State region, you mentioned to us before that that is connected to China, like it shares the same... By by a river, right? Yeah, Yeah. Um, and so I wonder like with just, you know, people can cross, um, you know, China and Burma, Myanmar with across a river. And you were saying, you know, there's so much leak. There's a lot of leak um, that, that goes on over there. How does that affect the Chinese Burmese population in Myanmar, the ones that are not from China, but maybe like they had Chinese ancestry from many, many generations ago? Uh, as I told you, like there always have been immigration problems, like the border leak is always happening, especially in the and peaceful region like Shan State. And 
And so there's always, it's very easy to go and pa uh, passing to through uh, China and Myanmar. And also like in the olden days, if you bribe, you can come into Myanmar really easily and you can live there. And so um, there are the Chinese citizen who settle in Myanmar. They don't even, get, they cannot speak. They cannot speak Burmese or any ethnic language, or but they are trying to do the business here. For example, we in that region we have the plantation of pap no, papaya, watermelon. They use a lot of plastic and a lot of fertilizer and lending the land by the Chinese company or some. So because of those negative impact of the Chinese business and Chinese people coming to Myanmar illegally doing the business and overpowering the business. And so the Burmese Chinese community in Myanmar also face a lot of discrimination. For example, my friends, my childhood friend, she has been facing a lot of like negative impact. And also we also, since we were young, we have like a, this kind of like stereotypical jokes. And it's kind of like a, in the movie or in the, in the cartoon, in the literature, the villains and the rapists, and they portray with the Chinese businessmen. So it's also affected to the Chinese Burmese community who has been living in Myanmar for many generations. And so some of them, well, most of them also faced problem, not only in Chinese community, Chinese Burmese community, but also like uh, Indian community in Myanmar also faced this kind of thing and how the media portray them, um, yeah in a bad way. So so I'm trying to remember, last time I think that time you were talking about how you are transitioning um, from a website that showcases a portfolio to a website that focuses more on photo book. And you also mentioned how right now, because of the the pandemic, you can't have these photo book gatherings um, to talk about, you know, making the photo book and the research. And also you can't have exhibitions at gallery spaces. And something that was really interesting to me was your story about how uh, photographers and artists in Myanmar, you all think about how to put together a story where if suddenly, you know, the government decides oh this this has to be censored or you can't uh, say this out loud yeah i i guess like i'm i'm interested in in more about that and how artists and photographers right now are you know they work with the fact that the government still has really strong censorship in speaking of censorship and before this government we have like a military control when we have like a military government we have like a very strict uh very strict censorship and very strict censorship but we know how to play with them uh because we know speaking of censorship if we compare with the olden days and the new government and we can say that uh, the censorship become east more than before uh, for example in the olden days we cannot talk about the opposition leader we, we cannot blame to the government and we cannot we cannot talk about sexuality the nude photos or this th things like that but now we have more um, channel and we can uh, we can talk about uh, gender equality we can talk about peace we can talk about uh, other things but we still have like a, a weird um, very ridiculous laws telecommunication law because these days we Mostly, most of the art form you can easily see online and people share on Facebook. And so that telecommunication law, you can they can sue you with the telecommunication law if it is violated, if your post or, or your artwork is, uh, if they somehow think violating, for example. And also, they, we also have a ridiculous law called defamation of the country or defamation of the religion or the person. And so they can sue you with under the name of that, or oh, you're defaming uh, your country or religion. Uh, as an artist, we have been facing those kind of challenges. And so some artists may some maybe like self-censored, but uh, for me, my photography form is not very direct and storytelling. And so I can I can somehow play. I think uh, self-censorship is really dangerous. Also, limited our artwork. So I remember one, it's not my exhibition, 
is the we are um, curating the exhibition for the stateless uh, project Greg Constantine. He has been doing the global stateless uh, problem, and we invited him and curated his work. He has uh, in his body of work. Uh, you talk about Rohingya uh, commu uh, community in Myanmar. So we have been discussing a lot, like how to present the work. But later, okay, factored and said if the authority come and take down the pictures from the Rohingya pictures, like the stateless people from Myanmar. So it's still fine. Maybe in the exhibition you will see other stateless photos, but here is a blank. And so that also tells how people treat, how the authority, the people with the power treating to the community, uh, the, the, the Rohingya community. And also like even if the authority come and send down the whole exhibition, we decided, okay, we will exhibit the blank wall as a whole exhibition that's also another message and i think this if it is happened it's also like a powerful statement to what is happening in myanmar uh, personally i don't i think we shouldn't sub-censor a lot if it is something happened like this and that's also another form of art for me I remember that you, in our conversation before, you mentioned the impact of the saffron revolutions on the way people perceived art also right now. Photography, especially, we, we didn't recognize the role of photography before. But after the revolution, uh, the role of photography become recognized and appreciated. I feel that you're very aware about uh, censorship. You're very aware of how the history books and the government has shaped the way people think about things and the way people express themselves through art. Do you feel like a lot of other photographers and artists in Myanmar have the same mindset as you? Do you feel like most people have the ability to reevaluate how they think about things, reevaluate their preconceptions? Yeah, I think uh, uh, in the photographic community, there are also other active uh, photographer who is uh, who is using photography to raise the question. Like for example, Minzi Yao, he's a photographer for Pan uh, agency. He has been working on Rohingya and also Jade Miney, and so he uh, those people also using the sensitive sensitively working on those kind of projects to raise the question to the general public and also my fellow collective member she has been working on a project on menstruation and menstruation in Myanmar is not treated like uh, Nepal or India but uh, still uh, menstruation is perceived as in a bad way like a dirty traditionally and also religiously so she tried to use photography to counter this kind of like misconception on menstruation in Myanmar community. There are some artists who try to use the artwork to evaluate and also like to raise the question, to make the spark, to make the people uncomfortable. But there are still also the other photographer who is doing stereotypical way of telling the stories. Another thing is maybe the education system in Myanmar also affected how the photographer work. I don't mean that they are uh, educated or non-educated, not like that. And because our educated system and also culturally, we were raised not to make the, raise the question, not to make the argument. And so in our uh, art industry, art community, uh, we don't have very rich culture of like art criticism and also like argument giving comments. So I think this is the area we need to improve in the photographic community in Myanmar. And I think if we start to have this kind of practice and we will have more interesting story uh, more and more. And in Myanmar, I think what the area, another area we need to improve is like maybe most photographers are happy with the single pictures, but not as a story. Um, so they're happy with this marvelous picture of the, the moment, capturing the moment, but we need to go beyond photography. And I think we need to have more photographers who want to go beyond photography and who want to challenge, uh, use photography to challenge something, to make spark, to make noises. Do you think uh, with internet, the new generations are more critical and more rebel in a sense that in comparison with the previous generation, we were like taught to be submissive. 
Yeah, I can say that um, this new generation, I recently finished the mentorship with a young group of people, like women and LGBT community. So after working with them, and, and I find it's very interesting responses and they are telling the story, their interest in photograph, using photography as uh, to tell their own story is very interesting. And I think the internet and also having access uh, and also like more resources, like I said in our olden days, we didn't know where to learn photography. So the way we learn photography is like just shoot or maybe just working as a fixer for the big photographer come to Myanmar for the international assignment. But now we have like the photo community, photo festival. And so some young artists go to the photo festival and meet with other regional photographers, what they are doing. For example, like uh, Kayuri Gallery from Indonesia. So we came to know the photo book culture in, in Indonesia. And also we came to learn about the how art collective is really important in, in Indonesia because we always rely on the institution, we rely on the funding, we rely on the international donors. I don't think that will be sustainable. Mm -hmm. And also, like, uh, like we mentioned before, we need something like locally run organization, locally run festival, locally run photo magazine to tell the inside story, I, I think we have more probability to run this kind of community with the, the emerging photographer group. Yeah. I feel like you're very active with these photography communities and photo book communities like in Indonesia. You did an interview with Gue Ari Gallery and then uh, I believe you also took part in Obscura. I guess I'm curious, do you feel that there, what's my question, or what is your vision in building more connections between these different Southeast Asian countries? Uh, I really like uh, the community uh, sense. Building connection also is kind of like uh, being a part of the community and we can exchange Cross, I also interested like a cross culture, cross culture storytelling and collaboration. Uh, for example, we did with uh, Kali Collective and Tima Collective, and we did kind this kind of uh, like a collaboration, cross culture collaboration. This experience is like it's not it's not like we learn from them, we learn from each other. It's in uh, some people uh, may think that building connection is like we don't have anything to put on the table. We learn from them, not like that. Uh, building community, it's, uh, for me, it's like we put something on the table and also we share things on the table. Uh, for example, I went to uh, Obscura, so I came across with um, the photographer from uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. And so it's kind of like we are, we are sharing each other. Like, and also like the photography scene in our region is still young. So having this kind of like a close, closely knitted family type community can also make us strong photographic community like Europe. And I really like a community sense. I usually like the festival who make a feeling of home, like Obscura, like uh, Angkor Photo Festival, uh, local photographers, and international photographers, every, everyone is like closely knitted. And also, I think uh, we don't have like big institution like Switzerland or Germany, like photo museum or this kind of opportunity. So having each other together, like like we did with the uh, Kali Collective and Duma Collective, we can do something together uh, within our own perspective and yeah, sharing art. So, uh, what programs did you do with the Collective Art in Jogja? I haven't worked with them yet, but for example, like Flock Project. I didn't know them before. I only know the their book, uh, the volume one. And so I'm really impressed by how their collective, like locally run artists make this project. And I'm really impressed by that. And then I was uh, came across with the Guaria uh, Gallery and I met with a group of photographers who's who are interested in photo book uh, as art objects. I can feel like a sense of like collective sense. I've been to Indonesia for 
foundry photography workshop, but not really well connected with collective in Georgia or this area. But during the pandemic, and I saw a discussion, artist talk discussion, inviting the international artists, inviting local artists in Indonesian art collective. So I think the collective activities in Indonesia is more active than other area in this region. Do you feel that collaborations within within communities in Southeast Asia, do you feel that they stay only within those communities and don't travel as far versus collaborations with European countries or European artists that get more international recognition? I think collaboration is like, as I told you, like it's like we are sharing each other, like um, putting something on the table together. But I, but we have a lot of like art exchange between like uh, East and West always happening, but it's very sudden to have like an exchange within the region. For example, in, 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 in Myanmar, we have like art exchange program, like, and I was uh, sent to Switzerland or some art, like uh, go to institute or to Germany. So this collaboration is more happening. So although we are in the very neighboring country, we are in the same country, for example, Thailand, Myanmar, there must be some collaboration, like exchange program, but compared with the exchange program, mostly more exchange projects with Western countries because of the funding nature or the other thing. Now I'm more interested in the collaboration within regional countries, for example, like Myanmar, Bangladesh, if I reflected back, before I'm being to Bangladesh, my conception of Bangladesh is so different. When I live in Bangladesh, I came to know same things happening, like corrupted government and the religion radicalist group, the women right. And so if we don't collaborate or if we don't have a chance to, to have conversation, we always have like impression like, oh, we are different. And I think regional collaboration can also help us start to have the conversation, for example, like the sense the, the conflict between like Myanmar, Bangladesh, Myanmar, China, and we, I like to see how the Chinese artists respond, how Myanmar artists respond to live and walk in China or walk with the Chinese artists and walking with a photographer from a thousand miles away. Yeah. <laughs> How are you how are you initiating those projects? Are you doing them yourself independently as a photographer or are you initiating those kinds of connections through Tuma Collective? Well, for example, like Bangladesh, like uh, collective art exchange because I was in Bangladesh before. I knew the collective before. So I bring Duma as like collective project. And so sometimes uh, artists individually bring something to the collective. Sometimes also collective itself carry us somewhere. And so it's like kind of like a versa versa. Mostly most of those connection is by visiting festival, like photo festival, like Angkor photo festival, Oscura. So this kind of like experience also extend our network and also like, yeah. So you mentioned that you don't call them subjects, the people in your photographs, you call them your collaborators because you're working together to create a story together. Is that something that you also implement in Duma? In Duma, we have different specialties and different strands and different uh, background. For example, we have like a photographer, investigative journalist, we have like architect, we have like researcher. So they also have their own strength. Uh, but in Tuma Collective, we practice of like sharing the walks together, like giving feedback. So this way I can bring what I value to the Tuma Collective. Maybe some artists will think subject, but some artists will think as a collaborator. I think we are growing together. We complete each other, so this way we support each other. Yeah, I remember you You told us uh, that you are being criticized for capturing a story not from the, like, the regular public, more like journalistic way of approaching like a tragic story, and you are more focused on the, like the girls that you collaborated with. You focus on her dreams and her happy moment before bad thing happened, right? It's a yeah. project called Memory Lane that I... Yes. Uh, yeah, so I guess my, I my question is... 
you continue. Yeah, you continue first. No, no, you continue. Yeah. No, because I'm just curious. Are there more photographers that approach this similar subject similarly the way you do? Um, the photography scene uh, community in Myanmar is pretty dominantly by uh, photojournalism. So I don't say photojournalism is good or bad, not like that. But in Myanmar, photojournalism is highly appreciated. And if you're not doing photojournalistic work, your work is not appreciated. And I think not a lot of photographers in Myanmar use like a storytelling language, like fictionalized storytelling and I feel like a direct Dutch photography is also effective like for example a trafficking story uh, from Myanmar to China maybe those kind of story need to be told with the reportage form but for specific story like the people with trauma some traumatic past maybe you need to tell the story in a different way for me in Myanmar I think one problem is like we have like groups So photojournalists, artists, contemporary photographers, this kind of group. For me, it's, it's more important how you tell your story effectively. The photographer in Myanmar also have the burden of how do you define the impact. Sometimes a photographer focus on the impact of the general public and they sometimes forget about the impact on the people they are shooting. So I think it needs to be balanced. And I think there's also, like, we don't have photocritic and we don't have the writing pieces on the photography walk. And I think this is the area we also need to improve in Myanmar photography community. And we should have more writers writing about photography, writing about the art projects and exhibitions to criticize and more discussion on that. And I I have to thank Magnum Fellowship because I had a chance to learn from the fellowship program how to photograph inclusive photography and how to shoot, uh, tell the story, not acting your collaborator more. You include the people you're shooting in. It's not just you as an author. We write the story together. So I got that practice from my fellowship program. Yeah, I, I think your project memory lane is one of my favorite ones from your body of work because it really refocuses on the the celebration of your collaborator in her home and it takes her away from this like strong gaze of trauma and torture that the news keep putting on her and this is like finally her time to say like this is me and I am a person of my own without all of these bad things that happen to me. So so I really love that. And I also really admire that it, it has like this almost like surreal, like dreamlike fantasy feel to the photograph. So I really like that too. I wanted to ask you, so you spent time in Bali. Did you learn any Indonesian phrases? Did you eat any Indonesian food? What were your favorite Indonesian food or Balinese food? In Bali, I, it was 2015 to the Bali uh, Photo Workshop that I met with Sebastian and other uh, friends. And I knew some languages, but I, and I remember one phrase like, uh, the phrase my collaborator usually say, because I'm, I'm sometimes I'm talkative and I'm bothering around him. <laughs> And the person I'm shooting, my collaborator, he speaks English. So it's also lucky and also unlucky because I could have learned more <laughs> Bahasa. Or, yeah. And I like Gado Gado. <laughs> ah, gado, I gado. love Gado Gado right. too. Yeah. The crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Toto Ayam. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> I love soto ayam. Yeah, it's like one of the, the comfort foods because it's soupy and it's warm. And when it's winter, yeah. it's like the best. Yeah. I'm wondering, how is your experience living in Bali for like a short period of time? It was very welcoming to me because the workshop is only five days. And I personally, I don't like short workshop form. We're going to be in the the location for a short time and come back and finish the story. I, and I know what I want to do. I want to do something, uh, the story related in the present state of mind that time. And so 
I spend more time uh, with the people I'm shooting, and so I I felt like it's very welcoming, and also and I could win the trust, and also that's because of the time, the amount of time you give with the people you are shooting, and also maybe another thing is like we have like a very common faces. Sometimes they they trying to talk to me uh, in the in the market or even in the host family I'm living in. Sometimes they talk to me in Bahasa, yes, start to talk. Uh, yeah, so I was like <laughs> sitting with the blank eyes. And another thing is like spending time uh, a lot with the people you are shooting also give you, makes you comfortable to shoot and also makes them comfortable with you. And so I spend most of the time with them and I sleep at their houses and I walk or sometimes talk with the, the sister of my collaborators or for the kitchen or this kind of things. I don't act like a, I'm a visitor and I'm a photographer. So do you have, you've done all of these really amazing issue-based social justice projects. Now, are you working on projects that are more personal to you? Yeah, uh, we always fascinating about other people's stories and I'm interested to the other story because that I can relate with myself and now I'm more focused on what's happening around me and what's happening. Sometimes we are talking about the social justice of other people and what about if you cannot even bring your own justice to yourself and doesn't make sense to me as an artist. So I started with a project with my father as, uh, as my like a childhood farmer. And then I also did a, a personal project with my breakup. I'm also working on a project of my response, personal response on the, in 2020, not COVID. I feel like things around me, the walls around me are falling apart socially, professionally. And, and I respond to that moment with my photography and also, uh, and I started to use analog photography and also I developed myself. The process of developing, it's also another process of telling the stories, uh, trying to use uh, experimental uh, development and like cross-processing. Uh, for me, I'm also, I'm very tactile person. And so I, I like to make photo book. I like to make prints. The act of like making prints, the act of like developing also, reflected how you, for example, like working on my violence inside me. And so I use the way I develop the stone is like the act of violence. And I let myself go of my violence or anger or pain. Yeah. And I also, I believe that personal is also political. Uh, we can also talk about domestic violence. We can talk about like power balance between men and women based on the personal story. So, and I also felt like a lot of appreciation on the issue-based storytelling, but, and I felt as an uh, Asian artist, and I didn't have like much uh, appreciation from the Western perspective, working on the personal stories. For example, like if I met with a Western curator, editor, they expected to see the story near my story. Uh, when they see my story from a not portfolio, they don't know what to do with us. And you can see in a museum or in a big gallery, you can you can see the personal works of the uh, Western artists like Salimhan, uh, like Sophie Gall, but they don't know what to do with us. And if they we don't bring the their expected stories. Um, sometimes I, I, I had a moment like I'm really uh, depressed uh, for some, some moment. And I think it's a, it's a system itself. It's happening like that. And it's happening for the uh, Asian artists like us. And I talked with my uh, friend. He's a good friend of mine. And he's also an artist. And he said, oh, maybe you don't fit with the system. And they don't know what to do with you uh, because your work doesn't fit with the system, the trend. So if you're trying to fit your work with the system, you will miss a lot of show in the next five years. Now you miss one or two shows, don't worry. But if you're trying to fit your walks into the system right now, maybe in the future you will miss uh, your artistic voice. I'm hanging in there. <laughs>
Yeah. Oh my God. What you said just made me so emotional because like I experienced that so much over here. Like when I work in theater and when I work in film, people want to put you in a box and they have an idea, you know, this preconceived idea of how they view you as a Southeast Asian or as an Asian person or as a woman or as an, yeah, like as an Indonesian Chinese person. It's, it's very frustrating because you know I feel like you I feel like I can't express myself the way I want to because otherwise if I really express myself the way I want to then I'm never gonna get any job because people are not gonna give me a job Um, so so it's it's like yeah it's 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 something that I feel you know a lot of artists especially women artists and Southeast Asian artists really struggle with yeah and I also I noticed that if you're a woman, if you're from this like region, uh, like Asian woman photographer, they're trying to put you in a very trendy topics. I remember one curator because I was I told you I was working on my project on my breakup, and I was shooting the people on Tinder, and the curator said it's it's not it's not it's not it's not a Tinder project. It's not it's just my break breakup story. How I overcome the vulnerability of the breakup during the process. This is a process itself. But the curator told me, oh, why don't you focus on the Asian woman based on the white guy? So it's, come on, it's not it's not my project. But they want to put me in the box, like the, the trendy topic, you know, you know what I mean? It's... <laughs> But why specifically <laughs> yeah. Asian women with uh, white guys? Because he saw most of my people I met on Tinder are white guys. It's it's not my purpose, mm-hmm. but I and also it's not my and also I don't even want to mention about it's a Tinder project. It's not about white guys. It's not about them. It's about me. So why <laughs> should I talk about like yeah? So yeah, yeah, and, and then. He he even suggested me to re-edit my statements. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. No, it just reminds me of this like dodgy stereotype back home that uh, Indonesian women are like cre- like head obsessed. over heels to get like yeah obsessed with like Western guys. <laughs> so no, I just like kind of reminds me a little bit. Oh, and by the way, I saw your book. You posted your book on Instagram the other day. Uh, which um, so it's I, the sorry not sorry one. Uh, it, it's still a dummy process, and so I uh-huh. haven't published yet because in Indonesia and I find you have like a good resources for bookmaking, like different papers and different techniques of binding binder. But in Myanmar, if you want to publish, we don't have a lot of good printing and also good choice of paper and then if you want this kind of binding you have to tell mm-hmm. the binder how to buy and so this oh, so we i'm still, still so it's still a dummy state dummy because i'm looking for a right paper for my cover you can see the cover is not the right paper because it's easily torn so oh, i'm I thought looking that was for intentional. the material for the Uh, why why do you think indonesia has better resources for photo bookmaking than myanmar i i have limited knowledge but i met with the gallery gallery and so they bring very niche handmade book and good quality like photo books not like coffee table books like very artistic photo books swap projects and yeah I guess I was just wondering, as a closing question, I'm curious, what are misconceptions about Myanmar and the world that you feel need to be broken down? When people think of Myanmar, um, always the poverty first. So it's not just Myanmar. And whenever other people think of the developing country like us, like poverty. And also when you think of Myanmar, Myanmar is dangerous. And so I can say Myanmar is dangerous in some parts, but it's not like the news you always see. And because we have also like peaceful parts. And also another thing is like uh, religion. As a majority of the Burmese are Buddhist, so we have like a pressure because of radicalist uh, group in Myanmar, like a Buddhist radicalist uh, group. 
making spark the troubling the our country. Um, so I think uh, because of the the repeated story we have been hearing all over and over again, uh, like Rohingya story, and it's very tragedy. And also, we are really ashamed of that as a citizen of Myanmar. But we also have other like sweet stories, like in Rohingya community and the Rakhine community. We always hear about the negative stories. And so for me, uh, we need to break down those kind of negative connectivity. And so we need to bring like a positive connectivity between the group. It's not about like faking the news or not like that. There's always something like love story. There's always like, like a friendship story. We need to uh, explore even in the tragedy. So uh, for me, I believe that if we bring about those kind of like positive story that can also somehow connect the community in the conflict. Uh, sometimes we only focus on the conflict and negative part, negative part. Sometimes that can even worsen the situation. So I'm not blaming the media only focusing on the in, uh, the negative part. Yeah, and, I think I think yeah. that's actually what I really admire the most about your work because your work takes something that is about torture and violence and you turn it around and you make it about joy and celebration and focus on the positive aspects of it. Um, yeah, I, I also think that most of the journalistic photo, like photography, I feel like instead of provoking compassionate, they provoke pity in a way, which is I, I really don't like, yeah, yeah. But that's why I really, I, I do agree with what you just said. And I really also like your work that it's not programming the viewers to feel pity, but to look at the other stuff that, that most people don't like to, you know, don't like to point out because I know maybe it's not, it's not going to grab so much attention or something. And I, and I feel like your work is more powerful where it stands because it's not trying to provoke these strong reactions, um, whether it's anger or pity, but that it actually asks questions to the audience and makes the audience think more deeply um, and, yeah, be more compassionate. Thank you. But we cannot blame the majority of photography community that they are doing this kind of photography because I think it's also another thing is like I like to point out the nature of the grant, the nature of the competition. If you see in the competition, you always see like a sad stories. The winner is the, the winning stories are like a sad story. The organization gives this kind of grant to the tragedies, sad stories. I think that's also like how photographers misled. Maybe they have the other story they want to talk, tell, but uh, they have the other misleading. Yeah. You know, the sexy, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with what you said because, like, what they do is very powerful, you know, like to bring people together. I agree with that too. Yeah, but just, I just feel sometimes like it has like a downside of it too. Right now, with Black Lives Matter or what's been happening in America with the coming election, I think it's, it's very powerful, powerful in, in both ways, I think, right now. Yeah. Like I said, the, this kind of like promoting uh, repeated stories, we've been seeing and we've been hearing the same story again and again. And maybe we are kind, sometimes bored with that. And so we couldn't bring empathy or action on those photo walks. And I think that's need to be careful in the future too. Um, you know yeah. what I mean? Like we have been seeing the same scene, war scene of the Syria, war scene of this, the Afghanistan. It's the same story. The same repeated pictures, sometimes your eyes become too used to it. A lot of people don't understand. Oh, sorry. sorry, I couldn't. Uh, every township uh, quarter is blocked. So mm -hmm. we have like an authority bus. So, <laughs> so they are inquiring me about the authority bus I can take out. Uh, <laughs> so, so with that, you can go out and do like grocery shopping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But you're not allowed to go to work. Like, no, we cannot pass from different township to township. Uh, oh. For example, like if I have to go to bank for my uh, payment, my payment, and I need to 
uh, go and collect my salary, but it's different township. My temp, my organization and I live in different townships, so I need a QR pass from the government uh, pass, and I need to apply. But now the site is and uh, is down, so I cannot even submit the application form, and I don't know. Oh no! It's, it's really why? Fucked up. Why? <laughs> The way they, they handle is really bad and they don't allow taxi or the private car to pass from different township, but they allow bus. So it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> it's mm. funny. Not so funny. How, do, how, do we, how are people getting groceries? I have to walk. Walk. Ah, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And in my, my housing is like a big housing. I have to walk a lot to get to the market. And mm-hmm. even to come with the, like, for example, rice, potato, they don't let the taxi in. So I have to go like maybe two or three times a week. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. I don't know. <sighs> <sighs> Maybe you're curious about the artists that Yu Yu mentioned. Tianlin, the former political prisoner, now artist. Or Min Zhe-ar who photographs jade mining conditions in Myanmar. Or maybe you're wondering why some call it Myanmar and others call it Burma. Here at Sugar Nutmeg, we encourage you to dig deeper and ask more questions about the topics we talked about. We want to thank you again for chatting with us in between her work with Tuma Collective and her personal project, Sorry Not to Sorry and When Spring Never Comes. To find out more about these and her past work, follow her on Instagram at UUMT underscore Burma or visit sugarnutmeg.com. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Alexandra. And this is Ruth.